Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We have crossed quite a threshold today, haven't we? A great threshold. We've entered into Holy Week, and we're now walking where Jesus walked. To follow along beside him, to see things as he sees him, to inhabit his story, and to see ourselves honestly in the characters that we stumble across in the commotion of it all. The call of Holy Week is to inhabit the story. I'm going to say that again and again. The call of Holy Week is to inhabit the story. Put yourself in it. It's part of God's story, part of our story, part of your story. Now, if you paid attention to the readings this morning, beginning with uh, the Liturgy of the Palms, uh, it's a bit bewildering, isn't it? It's a bit like an ice bath. I think of Palm Sunday that way. Just look at our liturgy today. This is almost schizophrenic shifting tone. Our two gospel readings, what you heard at the Liturgy of the Palms and the Passion you just heard, they couldn't be more different, really. It's as if they're separated by a vast ocean. We move so swiftly from Hosanna in the highest, Lord save now, to the betrayal of Jesus. And in no time we find ourselves at the foot of the cross and at the horrors of the crucifixion. It feels immensely disjunct when taken as a whole. So part of what we need to experience throughout this week is this sense of what happened? How did it come to this? I just don't understand. So if you inhabit the story and you have responses of shock and incredulity and feeling a little stupefied and confused, that's good. You're walking alongside Jesus as one of those disciples. We need to feel forlorn this week for all the right reasons. Our liturgy tells us where we're going today. It lays out the roadmap. Now, on Palm Sunday, I would say that a great divide begins. The gap between God's plan for salvation and our human plans for how we want God to rescue. There's a great divide that begins between those two things, between the divine plan of salvation and our human plans for how we want God to rescue Two very different perspectives. From an eternal vantage point, Jesus' mission and trajectory, they're clear. They're definitive. There's no surprises in the Godhead here. The Son of Man should be lifted up and then suffer death. But our experience of God's redemptive plan is often murkier. It's riddled with smallness and sin and all sorts of things. One minute we're praising the Lord over and jubilant over his triumphal entry. We just did that. And the next, we're despondent, confused, maybe even angry or demanding because Jesus isn't the kind of king I wanted him to be. Jesus isn't what I expected. We want a different kind of king and maybe not even a good one sometimes. The multitudes, so easy to condemn in the Gospels, this week they are our mirror, okay? They are our mirror. So inhabit the story this week. Inhabit the story. That means a couple of things, at least a couple of things, I should say. And as I said before, one, find yourself in the crowds and characters. Find yourselves in them that we encounter all this week. Consider what it means to be an enemy of Jesus. Okay? Consider what it means to be a struggling disciple of Jesus. Consider what it means to be a curious, intrigued onlooker who keeps their distance and just admires Jesus from, from right here at a safe distance. There's so many vantage points. So first thing about inhabiting the story is find yourself in the crowds and characters. Just honestly find yourself there. Who do you identify with? Who do you resonate with? Okay. The other essential is to imagine what Holy Week must have been like for Jesus. Okay. 
what Holy Week must have been like for Jesus. We not only journey with him, we try to see and experience this week through his eyes. And our first step in is the triumphal entry in Luke 19, taken from the Liturgy of the Palms that we just did. So we're going to start there and begin there this morning. So if you want to flip in your Bibles with me, you can. Luke 19, 29 through 42. Jesus is on the final leg of his earthly journey. Okay, It's beginning in earnest. He has prepared his disciples for his departure. He's instructed them as to what is coming. And the preceding verse in verse 20 says, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus embarks on the final chapter to set the captives free, and he leads the way. He goes on ahead of the disciples and the multitudes. And he comes via the Mount of Olives. That's mentioned twice in verse 29 and in verse 37. That's interesting. Some prophecies seem to indicate the Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives. David's journey to Jerusalem to reclaim his kingdom, his kingship, that was a thousand years prior, was via, guess where? Mount of Olives. You're good, that's right, good guess. He too secured a donkey to enter the city. Okay, that's 2 Samuel 15 and 16 for both of those. Nearly a millennia before Jesus. Is this a coincidence that David, the great king of Israel, foreshadows Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem? I don't think so. I think it's foreshadowing. And Jerusalem, let's remember, this is the crowning jewel. This is the capital city of the chosen people of God, a fitting place for a king to enter, right? The road to the cross begins here. Now, this entry could be compared to a political convention where the party leader's chosen and proclaimed to the nation, right? Here comes the, the great leader, the new leader, but it's probably more accurate to conceive of it as a regal coronation ceremony. Here comes the king. Here comes the king. Now, let me give you a little backstory uh, when it comes to Jesus' history with Jerusalem. When Jesus has ministered here before, things have tended not to go very well for him. People try to arrest or kill him. That's the experience. There's not a good history with Jerusalem at all. Let me give you three examples. John 5, uh, Jesus heals a paralytic, paralyzed for 38 years, but he does it, tut tut, on the Sabbath. No, no. When Jesus defends his actions by claiming to act with God, his father, that really gets him going, uh, the religious authorities seek his life. That's one bad example of Jerusalem. Another bad experience, John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a failed attempt on the part of the Jewish religious leaders to have Jesus arrested by the temple police. Okay? Another bad experience with Jerusalem. And then John 8. Remember when Jesus makes that statement before Abraham was? What does he say? I am. Okay? They immediately seek to stone him. So his prior relationship and experience with Jerusalem is tenuous at best. But this visit to Jerusalem, he's welcomed as king. And what a crowd he draws. Uh, as, he gets, as we get nearer and nearer Jerusalem, the crowd and the momentum builds. And from all the gospel accounts of the multitudes, a few things become very clear. One, the crowd is just its massive. Okay, It's Passover one of the three annual feasts that Jews attended in Jerusalem, probably the most popular of the three. Consequently, the population of Jerusalem just swells during this time. There's people making pilgrimages, so the crowd is massive. The other thing is there are all sorts of people in this crowd. So picture this. There's a real mixture. John 12 tells us that some that saw Lazarus raised are in that crowd. Okay, Some that saw other miracles are part of that crowd. 
The Pharisees, religious leaders, they're part of that crowd. So it's not just those who are sympathetic to Jesus. It's a real mix. And the third piece of this that I think is clear about the multitudes is crowd mentality. Do you guys know a little bit what I mean when I say crowd mentality? Like the looky-loos. It isn't mentioned in the text, but I think there's just a dynamic here that's true. Some folks are just simply swept up in the buzz of it all. They don't necessarily know what's going on. They don't necessarily know who Jesus is. It's kind of like when a celebrity unexpectedly visits someplace, right? Not everybody knows who they are, what they're about, what's going on, all that. There's just a commotion and a buzz, and it's easy just to get swept up in the crowd mentality of that. Now, Jesus' transport, in this case, into Jerusalem is a colt or donkey. Per Zechariah 9, 9 to 13, he enters in meekness. Now, this is what's interesting. For the colt and the donkey was a symbol of peace. Did you know that? The colt and the donkey is a symbol of peace. David's donkey was used at the coronation of Solomon in 1 Kings. It's no mistake that Jesus comes as a king of peace here. He makes that really clear. Now, if you came as a military conqueror, you know how you came? You came on a horse, okay? You came on a horse. Many seem to miss this critical symbol. Jesus did come to wage war. It just wasn't against flesh and blood, okay? It was against evil Satan and the fall. In Revelation, in the final judgment, Jesus comes on what? A white horse, okay? But the crowds miss the kind of king Jesus is coming in on a donkey and a colt. He comes to us, those who are his enemies, those whose judgment he would bear, as the prince of peace. (laughs) As the prince of peace. How could this be? And he enters as a poor man. You'll notice the disciples' cloaks. That's his saddle. There's nothing remarkable in terms of his appearance. He's not dressed up like me to draw, uh, draw attention to himself in any way. Okay, there's no regalia, there's no royal vestments, none of that stuff. And as the crowd, as he approaches, the crowd's waving those palm branches, as we just did, right? Those are symbols of victory, symbols of triumph, symbols of affirmation. Picture almost like a political pennant, you know, Jesus, yes, save us, Jesus, lead us, Jesus, we will follow you, Jesus. And people are spreading out their cloaks, their garments on the ground, now, this, the way you need to see this, this is an act of homage. This is submission. Yes, Jesus, you're our leader. You're our king. The people are recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah, the king. Many of them thought him to be the promised Messiah, the king. Son of David, that's a messianic title of recognition. People spreading out their cloaks. It's not unlike, picture someone rolling out the red carpet, okay? So they're doing that. They're laying their cloaks down in homage and submission. There's, I think there's echoes of Jehu's royal entry in 2 Kings 9. There's so many Old Testament echoes here, so much. And they're singing and shouting portions of Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And shouting Hosanna, which means Lord save or simply help. It's an imperative phrase. Psalm 118, interesting. That's a messianic psalm. Well, how about that? What are the odds? In Jewish worship, it celebrated God's plan to save through his Messiah. It was used at the Feast of Tabernacles. People believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was about to rise to power. And they're singing, they're chanting this, uh, chanting, excuse me, uh, this messianic psalm, Psalm 118, which threatened the current religious order. The Pharisees and Sadducees predictably get a little shifty here in this passage. They attempt to give a rebuke and maintain control. And Jesus says, I love this line. Look, if they keep quiet, even the stones would cry out. 
Love this. Jesus' point is clear. Even inanimate creation understands what's happening better than they do. So deep runs their blindness. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, it says that he beheld the city and that he wept. Fascinating. And when it says Jesus beheld Jerusalem, this is not an idle glance. This is far deeper than just a a little looking, a little seeing. He's looking with spiritual eyes and with the knowledge of what their rejection and what their coming disobedience means. He knows the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans is coming. He also knows they're about to reject and kill him. And what does this king do? He weeps. Jesus weeps. This happens a very small handful of times in the gospel. How odd and bizarre this must have been. I mean, put yourself in the scene. The jubilation, the fervor, the energy of the crowds. And here's Jesus, in contrast, weeping and wailing. Is that kingly behavior? Why does he weep? Well, he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it is hidden from your eyes. If you, even you, speaking to Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. In the Hebrew mind, which carries over into the New Testament, peace is a right relationship between God and ourselves. Okay? Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, the mender of that great divide between God and humanity. Now, most would have settled for peace with the Romans, right? Good enough for me. Release from oppression? That's what I want. That's what they're hoping Jesus will do. But Jesus had a far bigger task, creating peace, not just between Romans and Jews, but between God and humankind. Which is the easier task? I think you know the answer. These things Jesus said are hid from your eyes. Now, Jerusalem derives its name from shalom. You guys have heard that phrase, right? Shalom often means peace. What Jerusalem means is literally city of peace. Jerusalem, city of peace. It was to be a shining city on a hill and a testimony to all nations, a beacon for salvation. But instead... It's where the people of God will betray and murder Jesus, their king, their Messiah. His people, the chosen people of God, will soon fail so miserably and so terribly. Now, God only knows all the reasons for Jesus' tears and his abject grief. I think in some ways they are righteous tears. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It should never have come to this, and I know what's coming even if these folks don't. Should have never come to this. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Should never have come to this. And Israel, you're missing your moment. Peace with God is not possible aside from me. It's not possible. The Messiah has come and Israel will soon reject him. They didn't want the offering that God brought. They wanted a regal Messiah on a war horse. What they did not want was a carpenter king on a donkey. Jesus was a certain kind of king, one they would reject, one they would reject. And despite all the fanfare, Jerusalem didn't know who Jesus was, okay? That's the oddity of this passage. There's these two different views of what's going on, what Jesus knows and what the crowds think they know, okay? Jerusalem didn't know who Jesus was. They were dead wrong about the kind of king he was, dead wrong. He's literally the only one who can help them live into their namesake, City of Peace. Following the story, Jesus clears out the temple. You remember this story in righteous anger? I think of it uh, in these terms. Uh, Before people die, they often get their affairs in order. 
And I wonder if Jesus is setting his father's house, his affairs in order, beginning with the most holy place, the temple, perhaps. Now, folks, you've got to feel the war brewing in this passage. There's just volatility. There's a clash that's coming. Things are not as they appear, as I've tried to detail for you. There's a massive disconnect between how God, i.e. Jesus, sees things here and how we see things, how the crowd sees things. Thus begins the great divide on this Palm Sunday. And folks, this is how Holy Week begins. This is how Holy Week begins. A jubilant, expectant crowd welcoming their Messiah. The kind of Messiah they think. <laughs> a small but powerful group of fearful, plotting religious leaders. A small handful of disciples. And a deeply misunderstood, weeping king. What on earth is God doing? What is he doing? Now, this begs the question, I think, for us. What kind of king do you want? What kind of king do you want? Maybe your response is, I don't want a king. I don't need a king. <laughs> that might be your honest response this week. Hey, that's fair. Okay? Do you, but the question underneath that is, do you want the real Jesus? <laughs> do you want the real Jesus? Are you curious? Are you hungry? Are you compelled enough to follow him all the way to the cross and to wait for what follows? Or do you want the real Jesus? It's interesting. Jesus finally, if you'll notice in this passage, he finally allows himself to be identified explicitly as the Messiah here. That's unusual in the Gospels. He goes fully public here. Jesus is letting the world know unequivocally, yes, I am the Messiah. Even when everyone else's notions as to what his reign is all about are partial, misguided, and sometimes just flat out wrong. What kind of king is this Jesus? What kind of king is this Jesus? Take the journey that leads to Easter Sunday and find out. Be more than an onlooker in the crowd. Be a follower. Be a disciple of Jesus this week. Inhabit the story. Walk the road to the cross and see what God has in store. To see the real Jesus, and this is sort of a foregone conclusion, but I hope you get this. But to see the real Jesus, the kind of king he truly is, you have to walk with him. You have to walk with him. You have to keep close company with him. You have to inhabit the story. And I can promise you one thing. If you cruise through today, sort of on autopilot, yeah, 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 Palm Sunday, got it, check. Skipping over Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then show up ready to celebrate Easter, you will be cheating no one but yourself. And by the way, this isn't about coming to all those services, okay? I'm talking about something deeper and bigger than that. So can you leapfrog from now to Easter? You know, this suffering stuff, uh, this journey is too much for me. I, I just, let's get to resurrection. Can you do that? Yes. Will you miss the good stuff? Yes, you will. Walk with Jesus this week. Walk with him. Journey closely by his side. Find out the kind of king he is. Watch and see what he does. Don't stop short. Inhabit the story, which means, again, one, finding yourself in the characters, honestly, Consider what it means to be an enemy of Jesus, a struggling disciple of Jesus, an intrigued onlooker, or someone who wants to keep their distance from Jesus, but admire him from afar. Find yourself in the characters in these gospel stories that we encounter this week. Inhabit the story. Ask yourself, secondly, what must it have been like for Jesus in Holy Week? What must it have been like? And not just the intense physical suffering of the cross, though that is part of it. Think about the ambivalence of the triumphal entry that we just talked about. 
Profound ambivalence. Think about the Last Supper. What's it like to feed Judas the bread and the wine? What's that like? Think of the desertion of the 12. What's that like? Think of the profound strain of human loneliness. What's that like for Jesus? Think of the intense intimate communion he has with the Father on on Gethsemane, who he knows he'll see very soon, and wants that cup to pass from him, but not your will, Father, but mine. What must it have been like for Jesus? That's another way to inhabit the story this week. So folks, we'll end here. We've crossed over that great threshold, okay? We've crossed it today. We've entered Holy Week. We're now walking where Jesus walked, following along beside him, straining to see things as he sees him, inhabiting the story because it's his story. (laughs) That's why. There's no trick to it. We're inhabiting the story because it's his. It's part of God's story. It's part of our story. It's part of your story. So let's inhabit it, and let's take that journey together this week, okay? Inhabit the story, inhabit the story, inhabit the story.